Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, this is Colin. On today's show, yes, she who controls dragons controls the world, just ask the Khaleesi, but it goes well beyond Game of Thrones. And way back before that, dragons have captured the imagination of people going back to ancient cultures, Greek, Roman empires, where the skeletal bones of dinosaurs fed the myths that we still believe in today. The power and mystique of those myths have fed countless writers and artists whose creations thrill, terrify, and sometimes charm us. Some say dragons represent our innermost id. What would your dragon look like? Coming up after the news. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Hi, this is Colin. We're going to share with you today one of our favorite shows from the past, to show about dragons, the idea of dragons. But as we prepared the show for broadcast, we were saddened to learn that one of the guests, William O'Connor, had died rather suddenly in 2018. But what better way to keep the memory of his work as an illustrator alive than by re-airing this conversation? So, I hope you enjoy it. Me? Okay, I'm wearing, you know, the usual... These goggles and the long white lab coat. Under that, just for you, I am Commando. Dr. Wolfenstein, who are you talking to? Oh, I'm Skyping with my new um, friend, Dr. Yu. I met him at the Mad Scientist Convention in Hong Kong last week. Hey, Dr. Yu, say hello to my lab assistant, Creepor. Gregor. Greetings to you, Creepor. What is it with you people and names? Be nice to him. I know you don't think of me as a sexual person. But things got a little freaky-dicky at the convention, and I think this could really be the one. I'm getting sick in my mouth. So, Dr. Yu, tell Creepor what you're making, besides Whoopi with me. <laughs> I am making dragons. Over my shoulder, perhaps you can see the first ever Dr. Alan Yu Dragon Egg Incubator. 
When the eggs hatch, the baby dragons are taken to my heavily reinforced dragon pasture under a titanium dome. What kind of dragons are they, honey? These are Yokohama leghorns, black scales, ruby-colored bellies. And will you fly on the backs of these magnificent fire-breathing creatures, achieving world domination with them? Oh no, I'm raising them for meat. They taste just like chicken. I find that hard to believe. Well, first I will have my dragons destroy all of the chickens on the planet. Then my dragon meat will taste like chicken to the best of anybody's recollection. My Colonel Yu's Hong Kong fried dragon franchises will make me the richest man in the world. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I feel a little bit weird about this. What's wrong? It's just that, as mad scientists, I thought we were committed to, you know, mayhem and destruction. It just this seems really commercial, frankly. You are just like my family. They never support my ideas, like the fertilizer from sand worm poop. I thought you were different. Goodbye. Ah, <sighs>、uh, I really thought he and I had something, you know. Those convention affairs usually don't translate well to daily life. It's just that the sex was really great. Please, it's bad enough what I have to see in this laboratory. Anyway, the rest of you can listen to this show about the mystery and the majesty of dragons. And now, the guy who runs the spay and neuter program in Westeros. Colin McEnroe, and let me tell you, I deserve hazard pay for a job like that. So,、uh, doing spay and neuter with dragons. But on the other hand, if you have too many dragons and there aren't enough homes for them, you know how that goes. We are going to talk, be talking about dragons today and about why they do occupy this persistent. Place in our mythology, in our dreams. I mean, here we are in this incredibly high-tech age. But what are we watching? Game of Thrones, and we're watching the Hobbit movies, and we're reading Harry Potter books, and we're reading Matthew Riley's The Great Zoo of China, which kind of does for dragons what Jurassic Park did for dinosaurs. We're looking at Dracopedia, William O'Connor's book, sort of almost a, a morphology and taxonomy、uh, of dragons, and many other things besides. And in fact, the latter two named guests, Matthew Riley. And William O'Connor are with us today. But first off, just to sort of get the conversation rolling, because I want I want all of our guests to talk a little bit about how they fell in love with dragons, assuming that they did. We're going to start off with a, a little clip. You'll be hearing from her over the course of the day, although she's not live on the show. I taped an interview with Cressida Cowell, author of the series How to Train Your Dragon. So here's Cressida talking about how she became a dragonphile. I spent a lot of time as a child on an uninhabited island off the west coast of Scotland. I I grew up in the the centre of London, but my dad was a mad keen bird watcher. So every year, from when I was a baby, we would be taken to this tiny island by a local fisherman and dropped off there, and. Picked up again two weeks later, and there was nothing on this island. No houses, no phone, no supermarket, no way of contacting the outside world if anything go- went wrong. So it was quite an experience for a child. And this was the place, although it wasn't inhabited. You know, it hasn't been inhabited、um, for a long time. This little tiny island. It was the first place the Vikings came to when they invaded Great Britain, and it was the last place they left. So all over this little island, there were little ruined houses where real Vikings would have lived long ago, and Vikings believed that dragons really existed, and that they were magical creatures that could exist in earth, in air, and in sea, and in fire. So for Vikings, they were real creatures, 
and they were very much associated, actually particularly with the sea, but they were very much associated with the force of nature. And so that is really what a, a dragon means to me. It represents nature. All right, Matthew Riley, you write many no- you've written many novels. You've dipped into dragons. So it's presumptuous for me to ask you how you fell in love with dragons. I'm not sure that you are in love with dragons, but they mean enough to you to make them the center of this one particular book. Tell me about your relationship with them. I have a particular love of large creatures which like to eat people. <laughs> so I was led, I was heading inexorably towards dragons. I've written books which have had large aliens in them, killer whales, elephant seals. And how can you go past, you know, a nice gigantic creature which blows fire and runs after and chases people and leaves them running and screaming and eats them? So I was, I was heading towards dragons from 20 years ago. And it does seem also that when when we depict dangerous, unfriendly outer space aliens, a, a lot of times the dragon is somewhere there in the background. I mean, if you look at the, the, the mm. thing that is in all the alien movies, you know, I mean, it's about 40 to 45 percent dragon, I'd say. There's got to be a way of killing it. How? How do we do it? You can't. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it? I admire its purity. There's something about the reptilian creature. You know, yeah, the alien from the Alien series of films is decidedly reptilian. And there's something in reptiles which we as human beings, as warm-blooded, soft-coated creatures, soft-skinned creatures, we find something terribly frightening about the reptile and the... As Cressida said, dragon myths come around from around the world, cultures from the UK to the Vikings over to Mesoamerica, even China and Japan, had dragon myths. So there's something in us as human beings which loves to have a giant flying, fire-breathing reptile to fear. Although I'm sure others will correct me. Not every dragon breathes fire. Well, actually, if anybody were going to correct you, although I don't think he's in the business exactly of correcting people, William O'Connor might be that person, Dracopedia. It's sort of the Audubon field guide to dragons. <laughs> so, so tell us, uh, now this is a labor of love, obviously. So, so where does your love for dragons come from? Oh, I started uh, drawing dragons when I was a child. I think the imagination that I had as a, as a little boy, really, nothing sparked my imagination more than this terrible, fire-breathing, flying creature. And, and uh, it's always been with me. I've just, every time that I've, you know, I've been through college and studied, I've always come back to this, this animal, this creature. So, yeah, Dracopedia was a, a labor of love. It's sort of an encyclopedia of everything that I had learned over my 20-something years in the art business of depicting dragons and monsters and sort of trying to find a, a commonality, a global commonality that, that, as Matt said, every culture has a dragon in it. And I think there's something innate in our in our uh, cultures that, that really are drawn to this, this animal. You know, Matthew Riley said that maybe somebody might correct him. And one of the things that uh, I've discovered, I have a confession to make, first of all, which is that I went to a school where the mascot, rather than being, than being a tiger uh, or, or a, a bear or something like that, was a wyvern, uh, ah, which, nice. meant, mm. which meant that, uh, among other things, inevitably, people would from other schools would say, what is your mascot? And we would say a wyvern, and they would look at us very blankly, and then we would say, well, it's a certain kind of dragon, and they would say, you pretentious twits, and 
and then things would kind of do, devolve from there. But one thing that I've uh, noticed, Bill O'Connor, is uh, if you get among people who are a little didactic uh, uh, or dogmatic uh, about dragons, you will they will correct you. You will stand corrected. For example, I've seen people say, well, a wyvern isn't a dragon. It's a, wy- it's a wyvern, right? Well, that was one of the reasons I wanted to put this book together um, was because, again, for my entire career, I've worked on Dungeons and Dragons and World of Warcraft and uh, every you know conceivable uh, publishing kind of uh, company you can think of. Dragons are out there, and they're always different kinds. And I wanted to put something together that said this was my sort of uh, codified encyclopedia of what. Um, I think different types of dragons look like. And I still get arguments from lots of people who say, oh, no, a worm isn't a dragon and a, a dragon isn't a wyvern or, or whatnot. And uh, yes, there's, but there's so many dragons from all over the world that uh, it's certainly open to a lot of creative interpretation. I think that's what artists have been drawn to for so many mm. millennia, really. In a little while, we're going to talk to Adrian Mayer, a scholar who's really looked deeply into this and maybe can tell us a little bit more about worms and wyverns and stuff like that. But Matthew Riley, you know, one thing that we can say is that dragons present themselves so differently from culture to culture that it is pretty hard to make up rules about them. I mean, they, they sometimes they're friendly, sometimes they're not, sometimes they talk, sometimes they don't. Uh, there's, there's, but. You know, one thing that I that I kept coming back to, and I want to see how you react to it, and it's once again, it's not universal. You can find plenty of exceptions. But there's this notion in the dragon, embedded somehow in the dragon, of this thing you can't control, but that you also try to control. I mean, so often, whether it's the Khaleesi, whether it's, I mean, you've got it. I mean, this notion of, oh, yeah, we can control this thing, but its big lure at the same time is that it can't be controlled and that these two notions are in constant collision. Yeah, it's um, it's funny. Uh, when, when The Great Zoo of China came out, um, some people said, oh, you know, that must be like Jurassic Park. And as the world's biggest Jurassic Park fan, I was very keen to make sure it was not mm-hmm. like Jurassic Park. And it's funny you should mention control because if The Great Zoo of China is like anything, it's actually like that the sorcerer's apprentice story. Mm. It's it's this notion of setting the mops in motion and then they multiply and they multiply and then it's out of control. That to me is what Jurassic Park did. You create dinosaurs and then you think you can put them in a theme park and you lose control. And we as human beings like to have control. Uh, and getting back to what you were saying about the different kinds of dragons too, what what I the audience that I write for is a very modern, techno-savvy audience. And the joy of writing about a dragon set in the modern world for a modern audience is because it's mythological, you can give it talents. But for the modern audience, you have to give it realistic talents. And so I loved what William was saying, that different... uh, it, It amazes me that some people say, well, no, that's not that kind of dragon. And I'm like, well, if you're smart enough and you're willing to invest some time in creating your own dragon, the sky's the limit. So my dragons, they had the skills of real creatures. Sharks can detect bioelectrical energy. My dragons can see in ultraviolet, like hunting birds of prey. Crocodiles have great memories. Animals can hear, like dogs can hear on levels that human beings cannot. What if all those talents were put into a dragon? Even the modern audience demands to know how an animal the size of a 737 can fly. Mm-hmm. So I invested in my dragons uh, a complex, lightweight bone structure based on birds, 
and pterodactyls. So the modern audience wants, they want these huge animals with great skills, but you've got to make it real now for, for my kind of techno-savvy uh, movie-going audience. Um, we talked to Cressida Crowell a little bit more about that notion of um, dragons as the uncontrollable part of nature. Let's hear what she had to say. Because I think there's a different attraction for ancient peoples in dragons and for modern peoples. Ancient peoples had this you know, fascination with dragons as forces of nature because they were trying to wrest a livelihood out of nature, which mm-hmm. could easily, you know, you could easily starve in, in ancient times. But modern people, we sense we have a disconnection with nature, that we, we're living in cities and we're, we're apart from nature and we, the world is, is no longer out there to be discovered or explored in the same way that ancient peoples discovered and explored the world. As a result, I think we can feel alienated from an essential part of what it is to be human. So that's one of the reasons that I think that dragons and themes about dragons, people are drawn to stories about dragons and themes about wildness. And sometimes over here, I don't know whether you have this in the US, we had a big hoo-ha over here in in the UK when it was discovered that the nation's favourite book was Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Everybody said, oh my goodness, why is this? Is this, you know, why are, you know, is it because we're infantilised, you know, that adults are interested in fantasy so much? And I don't think that's true. I think it's because, as I say, we have this instinct that we are slightly disconnected from nature, from nat- natural forces. And we know in our hearts that that's not a very good idea. Um, I'm going to go to William O'Connor in just a second about to talk about the way in which the old dragons are embedded in nature. But Matthew Riley, that's very much there in your novel, The Great Zoo of China. In that sense that people, yes. people because it's not part of their daily lives, they make it part of this special thing that they do. Uh I'm a big believer that human beings love stories. From the time we gathered around campfires, uh, you know, 4,000 years ago to today, we still love stories and stories which take us out of the everyday. Now, 4,000 years ago, a story about a dragon might have explained a a lightning strike starting a forest fire. Uh, Nowadays, in this, you know, high-tech modern world, we still love to go to movie cinemas and read books and get taken away from our world, when it comes to dragons and creatures, one of the oldest story archetypes is the slaying of the monster, that a monster of some kind is tormenting, terrorising a village or a town, so the town selects its three bravest warriors and sends them out to slay the monster. Now, let's think about Jaws. Jaws is exactly that story. A large great white shark is terrorising a town, so they pick their three bravest fellows, send them out in a boat, and they go out and slay the monster. I think this is something hardwired into us, and dragons are one of uh, a pantheon of monsters we love to hear about. But, William O'Connor, dragons are kind of a special part of the pantheon of monsters, it seems to me, anyway. I mean, we talked about that reptilian quality uh, at the beginning. I mean, there are other monsters that have to be slain, and it's Grendel, and it's the many-headed Hydra, and we can kind of look around. But we just, we keep coming back to this thing that is, that flies, and it kind of looks like a snake, but it's not exactly a snake. Um, There is the persistence uh, of the dragon that it must symbolize many things to us all at once. Oh, it absolutely does. I couldn't agree with Matt more. It is absolutely inherent in our storytelling traditions that go back into the prehistory. In fact, some of the oldest art that was depicted 
is of dragons. So uh, there is this absolutely a rich history of the dragon, something about it um, that is just a natural force of nature that man con- continually needs to confront and either overcome and and triumph over every hero, Beowulf and Jason, and and into the Catholic tradition, you get Saint Margaret and Saint George, uh, both battle dragons that represent evil, and uh, even into the modern period, even though the the traditional reptilian dragon sort of recedes into the background and is replaced by science fiction and is replaced by you know, Martian tripods shooting laser beams, it's still essentially a dragon a monster that, that is threatening our existence. Um, but nowadays, contemporary stories are also wrestling with the idea of possibly controlling this force, controlling this monster, um, that sometimes we've created ourselves. It's a technological dragon that we've created and must destroy or control, or it's something from outside that we have to confront. You know, uh, Bill, um Matthew isn't, I, I know from his writings, entirely crazy about the notion of the dragon as id. Uh, all, but, but you know, you, when you talk about, say, St. George or something like that, not to get too Freudian about this, but, you know, what's up with this dragon? Well, it eats virgins, right? It eats, it eats a virgin every day. Um, somebody needs to control this. Somebody needs to bring this force under control. And we can argue that most of the time a dragon is a force of nature, but it, it does seem to me that in some of the Christian symbolism, um, the dragon is a different force. It, it has something to do with sexuality, with our un, our under controlled drives that maybe need to be brought under control uh, by adherence to faith. But that's that's a very interesting interpretation. Is and you know that's very valid. Um, the the dragon, like I said, either represents an external force or perhaps an internal dragon. Everybody has a personal dragon. Sometimes you've heard that phrase that you have your own personal dragons or personal demons. To deal with the dragon represents those things. It's it's all powerful. It's titanic. It's elemental. It's from the earth. It breathes fire. It flies in the sky. It represents in almost every storytelling tradition both a personal uh, challenge to the hero and a larger challenge to the culture. And uh, Matthew Riley, I mean, that is another part of the dualism. You know, we talked about the dualism of control. You can't control it. You want to control it. I think the dragon also is outside you and inside you. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, and and you can't deny that, uh, and the the story you can't deny the uh, psychological or even religious overtones. And the Saint George story of protecting the virgins is perfectly that. That is the fire breathing dragon, our our inner uh, lust, and this this inner lust which must be controlled and contained by by virtue. Um, the funny thing is, I think our, our notion of control has become a 20th century thing that in the 20th century we mastered the atom. We've seen physics, you know, explode and become, you know, our physicists have become rock stars from from Einstein onwards. And that gave us control of this huge power of of nuclear explosions. And obviously the bombing of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II showed this mastery uh, of science and technology. So we've seen with our stories we've become the masters of technology. And I think going right back to that, that Sorcerer's Apprentice, even the Jurassic Park notion, Jurassic Park, which ends with large dinosaurs, which possibly their mm-hmm. bones were the, the cause of dragon myths, large dinosaurs stomping on cars and chasing people, it began at the 
genetic level, with DNA. So I'm somebody who definitely tries to uh, make scientific these myths. And I'd love to hear from William as well. One of the things I discovered with my research of dragon myths is that it was always a lone dragon. I I never read about packs of dragons. It was always a lone dragon, which... yeah. Matthew, you're right. Um, Usually dragons are a solitary creature. I think you were mentioning... Uh, mankind's ability to try to control the atom in the 20th century. And I think one of the best dragons of the mid-20th century was Godzilla. He's this titanic creature that comes out of the ocean and breathes radioactive fire all over Tokyo. George, here in Tokyo, time has been turned back two million years. This is my report as it happens. A prehistoric monster the Japanese call Godzilla has just walked out of Tokyo Bay. He's as tall as a 30-story building. Now he's making his way toward the city's main line of defense. 300,000 volts of electricity strung around the city as a barrier. A barrier against Godzilla. I can hardly believe what has just happened. Now it seems Tokyo has no defense. And so, again, this, this danger that we've released onto ourselves. Oh, that's perfect. I hadn't even thought about Godzilla in that context, but obviously he is a dragon. We're going to take a quick break here. We've been talking to William O'Connor. He is the uh, creator of Dracopedia, uh, a guide to drawing the dragons of the world. But it's also it's more than that. It's, it is a morphology and a taxonomy uh, of dragons. Matthew Riley is with us. His new thriller, The Great Zoo of China, is all about dragons. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. But before we do that, let's, um, let's end this segment with uh, one more uh, clip from uh, Cressida Cowell. She's the creator of how to train your dragons. It does seem as though, I mean, and dragons, they really aren't just one archetype, right? They're a whole, like a whole b- no. bunch of different archetypes. And one of the archetypes is that notion of a larger, more powerful ally to someone very small. I mean, that's one of the reasons that they appeal to children is that children feel a little bit helpless, a little bit powerless compared to everybody else. But what if I had this? Oh, yeah. wa- but you've got your big friends. Right. Yes. What if I had? Th- and it, th- <laughs> it's sort of true in Game of Thrones, too. The Khaleesi is a relatively small, yeah. slender woman. But if she's got these dragons, they're equalizers, right? What if I had this big thing that was on my side that you were afraid of. Absolutely. But also the idea of having power over the dragon. I talked about tricking the dragons and lots of legends about tricking the dragons. Also, having power over the dragons is a bit like us having power over nature. Nature is a terrifying force out of which ancient peoples, I mean, it's only relatively recently we've had supermarkets and we haven't been living this hand to mouth existence. So tricking nature, kind of making nature deliver up to things up to us, is very much part of, you know, it's hardwired into humanity to want to do that. The idea of having the power over the dragon. Also the idea of, of dragon riding. I mean, that's a, mm-hmm. a bit like having the dragon as the big defender and the big friend. The idea of being able to fly on the back of a dragon is the idea of being in, in symbiosis with, with nature, of working with nature, of, with this natural beast, and being able, but also being able to fly beyond the back. It's very ingrained in human nature to want to explore mm-hmm. and to go beyond the horizon. The magic dragon lived by the sea and frolicked in the autumn mist in a land called Honolulu. Little Jack. 
As long as people have been going into these woods, there have been stories about the Millhaven Dragon. How's that song go again? They come from the north, right? Way up there in the mountains where few people have ever been. But sometimes, a dragon gets lost from its family and winds up very, very far from home. They say it lives in these very woods, that you can hear its roar at night. They say this, they say that, but as far as I know, not one soul has ever actually seen this dragon, except me. You saw a dragon? I sure did. Oof. I sure did. So uh, we're doing this show all about dragons. We've got Matthew Riley, author of 13 novels, most significantly for our purposes, The Great Zoo of China. Uh, we've also been talking to William O'Connor uh, of Dracopedia. We're going to add another uh, voice, another uh, kind of expertise to the conversation. Adrian uh, Mayer, uh, independent scholar in classics and uh, the history of uh, and philosophy of science at Stanford Humanities Center and the author of The First Fossil Hunters, Paleontology in Greek and Roman Times and Fossil Legends of the First Americans. Adrian Mayer, well, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Illustrious company. Thank you for having me. It does seem as though that one of the ways that this whole dragon mechanism works is that it is kind of a bridge between the fossilized record and our imagination, that it isn't exactly the fossilized record and it isn't solely from our imagination because the first people who thought about dragons were probably looking at enormous bones that didn't make any sense to them. Is that the way you see it? I do. I, I, first, I do want to make clear that you can have, you can make dragons out of your imagination as well. You can take component parts of all the scariest animals you know, crocodiles, sharks, lizards, tigers, and just put them all together and come up with a really monstrous, scary dragon. So they're not, not all dragons are influenced by fossils, but if you already have a story about dragons and fantastic creatures like that that are hybrid and fabulous, when you come across some gigantic, bizarre, stony bones of some creature you've never seen before, that certainly influences the, the image and the stories of dragons. A lot of places with dragon stories, a lot of cultures have dragon stories, and they also have the fossils to go along with it. Adrian uh, Mayer, one of the things we've uh, tipped our cap to a couple of times here is the notion of dragon diversity, that they're all over the place, but they're not always the same. Can you give us a sense of the variations in, in dragon temperament or, or, or dragon essence from culture to culture? Well, it, uh, the dragons of ancient Greece were pretty awesome and scary. Uh, I can tell the story of Hercules fighting the, he's the, sort of the first dragon slayer of, of Greek history. He, he tangled with the hydra, which had many heads. So that's one kind of dragon, a serpentine, venomous monster with, with multiple heads, that, uh, almost impossible to kill. And then there's Jason of the Argonauts, who was seeking the golden fleece. He needed the help of a, a very powerful witch, a sorceress named Medea, who controlled dragons. She was almost like Daenerys of the um, Game of the Thrones. She actually uh, rode around in a chariot of gold drawn by two dragons, very serpentine dragons, and she was the one who made a sleeping powder uh, that, that would... Uh, uh, control the dragon that guarded the golden fleece. And that's, that's something that Tolkien latches on to, I think, that notion of the sleeping dragon. Yeah, yeah. And they're guarding this fabulous treasure. Um, and uh, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of difference in, in whether dragons have uh, two feet and uh, wings or whether they have 
four, a very long undulating body and four legs. Wyverns um, have two feet. I already know, I do know that. If it's a wyvern, it's two feet. That's right, yeah. and and wings, and it's it's a smaller dragon. And what's interesting is that in Germany, uh, there are there are many fossils uh, that would be visible to people in medieval times and antiquity, even uh, that look like small dragons uh, with bat-like wings and uh, two feet. They would be. Um, Archaeopteryx uh, uh, fossils that are some of the first flying dinosaurs, and and there was also um, a lot of uh, a lot of controversy about whether dragons had scales. Did they have feathers? Did they have a combination of scales and feathers? Uh, did they have crests? Um, did they have wings or not? Did they even how many toes did they have? There are a lot of uh, dinosaur footprints that can be seen all all over the world especially in china and they can range from you know small chicken size to gigantic tyrannosaurus rex size but they have three toes so it looks like a a bird-like creature um it does seem as though the mesoamericans with their quetzalcoatl you know this feathered serpent it's, it's sort of like they saw modern paleontology coming i mean we now know that the dragons were a lot more i'm the dragons that the dinosaurs were a lot more bird-like than we had previously thought hey matthew riley you know she mentions china i mean obviously china dragons i mean these there's a uh, a symbiosis that's been there for a long time why did you decide to set your thriller after doing all this research uh, into dragons, why set it in China? Uh, there was there were several reasons. One, I think uh, China is on the West's mind right now. Uh, what I saw in China was the history of the dragon. But with the zoo that the Chinese government creates in my book, they're actually trying to top Disneyland and Coca-Cola and Pepsi, all of these soft cultural things that America uh, won over the world with. And China wants to be number one. And in my research of, actu- of modern China, China actually has policy called the China Dream, which it's the Communist Party's goal of making China the number one country in the world. And to do that, they have to match and exceed the United States in industry, in military, and in soft culture. And I thought China needs something to knock off Disneyland. They need a destination. And a zoo in the modern world with dragons in it, would be something like that. And that's where Chinese miners stumble upon a cave of dragon eggs. And so the party decides to build a zoo uh, containing the dragons with, you know, an invisible laser dome on top of it. Uh, and and th- that's how you get a zoo. So I thought China is on everyone's mind. China is linked so closely to dragons throughout history. And the first dragon myth that I discovered was a Chinese dragon myth dating back to, like, 4700 B.C. So just as with gunpowder and many other things, China were the first Mm -hmm. with dragons. You know, um, Adrian Mayer, I don't think I'm forcing this comparison. Maybe I am. But, you know, he's talking in some ways about civic myth, about, you know, the notion of China aggrandizing itself or telling its own story by, by doing something in this very modern context. But one of the things that you've looked at really is how dragons fit into civic myth. Um, we could probably use the, the Klagenfurt uh, in Austria as a good example. Uh, tell us about that one. 
Well, uh, the Klagenfurt dragon is a, it's a very large sculpture, a sculpture of a dragon. Uh, it's a fountain. He doesn't breathe fire, but he, uh, he, he is a fountain. And it's a very large dragon, uh, very typical four legs, very uh, serpentine body with wings and a very scary crested face with bulging eyes and giant teeth. This was built in, uh, about, uh, 1500s in, in Klagenfurt, Austria. You can go and see it. And it turns out that uh, the skull was based on the discovery of a Ice Age woolly rhinoceros that that some local quarrymen had dug up in about 1300, and uh, they assumed that it was the skull of a dragon. It didn't look familiar to them, a woolly rhinoceros skull. And so they had uh, the artist, uh, the sculptor, make this, uh, recreate the dragon just based on the skull. And, of course, he made a typical dragon. And then they added uh, Hercules uh, with a club to be fighting this dragon. As I said, he's the first dragon slayer. So some people say that's the first uh, earliest known reconstruction of an, of an extinct animal. But uh, actually, I think there were many more examples. And I, I like the idea of China being the one to have the zoo with the dragons because, of course, as, uh, as Matt said, uh, China is very patriotic and nationalistic, and the dragon has been their symbol for for a very long time. And they have they not only have dinosaur fossils, uh, remarkable, extraordinary uh, diversity of dinosaur fossils that can be course uh, they can correspond to all all the dragons of China, but they also have uh, lots and lots of stone eggs. I've I've seen uh, the biggest collection in the world in China is in. Hangzhou, uh, they have hundreds of nests of dinosaur eggs, that are, uh, stone eggs in the nest still, and they're of all different sizes. Um, and just the idea that you could maybe someday hatch those. You could even find nests with hatchlings, which look like baby dragons, of and course. Can't you also buy dragon powder, or so, supposedly gra- gra- ground-up dragon powder? Yeah. Uh, used for... Uh, the Chinese would uh, refer to dinosaur bones and, and bones of other bizarre ex- uh, extinct creatures as dragon bones, and you can still buy that in Chinese pharmacies. Actually, here in California, you can go to Chinese pharmacies and buy uh, dragon bone powder uh, today. <laughs> you know, um, Matt and I, at the beginning of this show, were talking about the notion of control. I want to come back to that with the Klagenfurt for just a second, because it seems to me that that's also there in this legend. So you have this story of the Lindworm, you know, that the dragons are, you, maybe you can explain in just a second why worm comes up uh, in the dragon context. The Lindworm, you have this winged dragon, it's this horrible, stinking, fetid thing that's, uh, you know, stinking up the lake and is being fed virgins, which seems to be something that dragons like to eat their they eat them in the in the St. George legend, too. They like virgins a lot. And you, when you think about what what's the establishment of a town, what's the establishment of order, what happens there? Well, particularly, you know, if you go back f- far enough in history, it really is the teeming of the wilds, this sense that out there, outside the walls, is all kinds of scary stuff, not a good place to be at night, got to get inside the walls. And so you, you kind of could see how this dragon story is the story of the teeming of wilds things, the expulsion of everything that's dangerous, so that inside we can have civilization. I think you're absolutely right, and of course the great superhero of Greek myth was Hercules, and he was renowned for killing all sorts of monsters and making the making the Greek world safe for human beings by killing 
frightening and powerful predators, uh, not only the hydra, but the gigantic Nemean lion and various other monsters, uh, in order to um, make the world safe for civilization. And, and Matt, sort of the, the dark joke of your book, it partly is this notion, oh, let's bring the dragon back inside. You know, let's, let, let's mm. not have it be something outside the walls. Let's have it be something inside the walls so we can really enjoy it. Well, because we think we're all powerful now. We think we've, we're, we're modern gods. Technology has made us gods, and, and the Chinese uh, creators of this zoo think that with all their technological marvels of you know ultrasonic shields and 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 domes uh, of of laser light which a dragon will hit and fall out of the sky they think we're so clever and and i i love the notion that you mention of dragons tap into our need for establishing order you know come in at night it's dangerous out there but you watch a lot of the television shows on your television every night morality tales have been a staple of Hollywood storytelling for 60 or 70 years. Uh, we are always being asked, even in the most basic sitcom, we've got to appeal to our better nature. We've got to do the right thing because we're all in this together and we're all safer together. And as you've probably noted, I, I don't really get too much into the psychoanalysis of dragons, but I do really jump into that, that a dragon is a symbol of the wild and we're all safer together. All right. Um, we also, as I said, uh, talked to Cressida Cowell, uh, author of How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, as we end this part of this segment, let's go back to her. Because I think one of the things we're also saying is dra- the dragon as an idea, it- it's not static. You know, it could be this scary thing. It could be this friendly thing. It could be this story that you tell about the Klagenfurt to reassure your populace that everything's safe and sound now. But this, it doesn't always stay that way, even if that's what the story is meant to be. Stories about dragons are complicated, you know, so often they can be about um, dragons can be terrifying, but they can also be less terrifying. They can um, and they can often be creatures that you trick because you're tricking a livelihood out of nature. That's why I think you have this idea of, of dragons being tricksters. And in that part of Scotland where we were living during the summers, there were lots of legends about dragons because, you know, the Vikings um, lived there and, it, and these stories would then be told through the generations. And these legends, for instance, on a nearby island, there was a legend about a dragon that had turned into a mountainside. So when I was a little girl, I would lie in bed when I was a bit older, when my dad had a house built on the island, and it would be stormy outside. And I would imagine maybe the noise of the storm was the dragon that was on the hill outside that that might have turned into a dragon, might be waking up, shaking off its rocky inclination and waking up. So for me, dragons were simultaneously very, very exciting, but also terrifying. Take me to the room where the black's all white and the white's all black. Take me back to the shack. You don't take no prisoners. You gotta give me the business. Got a dragon on my back. Hey, it's a dragon attack. Uh, Hagrid, what exactly is that? That, it's, uh, it's, um... I know what that is. Hagrid, how did you get one? I won it. Of a stranger I met down in the pub. Seemed quite glad to be rid of it, as a matter of fact. (laughs) 
that? A dragon. That's not just a dragon. That's a Norwegian Ridgeback. My brother Charlie works with these in Romania. Isn't he beautiful? Oh, bless him! Look, he knows his mummy. <laughs> Hello, Norbert. Norbert. Yeah, well, he's got to have a name, doesn't he? Don't you, Norbert? So, Adrian Mayer, I want to come back to, I want to talk about sort of the, the dragon renaissance that we seem to be having. Some of it is just because we're having a fantasy renaissance. you got Harry Potter. Harry Potter is very syncretistic. It just pulls together every single mythos and, and uh, an icon that you can imagine. Uh, so that includes dragons. But you've got The Hobbit, and you'd think we'd be kind of jaded or inured to dragons. How come we're not? Well, I think Matt pointed to this. We think we think that we have uh, control over nature, but we're we're a little dubious that we do. I mean, what Cressida said about the awesome power of a storm being associated with dragons. I mean, there are, there's a lot of things we can't control about nature, and weather is one of them. And it's interesting when she brought up the storm motif because many linguists believe that the Chinese word for dragon derives from the word for thunder and frightening storms. And, of course, that's when dinosaur bones are emerging from the earth in the erosion from very powerful storms. So you go out after a, a powerful thunderstorm and lightning storm, and, and you find the bones of dragons. It's, uh, it's always associated with rain, but especially in China. And that's why uh, dragons were held in such awe is that they controlled the weather, which was extremely important in China because of flooding rivers and uh, the need for rain for agriculture. And I think about the I Ching, which was written in the Bronze Age, about 800 B.C. Even the I Ching has a section in there that says a farmer who's plowing his field and uh, plows up some dragon bones, he will be a lucky man. So, the, the, um, of course, that's an that's a way of saying that you're plowing up dinosaur bones in your field, so you will be lucky and fortunate. So uh, there's this sort of tension between can we really control nature or, does, or are we at the mercy of nature? And that might explain this beneficence of, of dragons, but also their awesome power and um, why they might be associated with wisdom and yet we can't really control them. Well, also, we, we love to dream of frontiers. I, I asked uh, Cressida Cowell, uh, the creator of How to Train Your Dragon, uh, about this. Let's hear that clip. If we are, in fact, having a dragon renaissance right now, if Lord of the Rings uh, and the Dragon Smog is, is uh, the most popular <laughs> book in England, and we've got your, your books, and we've got Game of Thrones, and there are dragons every yeah. which way, I think part of it also, it, it has something to do with being over-mapped. There's an old trope of the ancient map that says, here there be dragons. Right. And now everybody's walking around with a phone in his or her pocket that can yeah. that has GPS coordinates on everything. And if you think about Lord of the Rings, the first thing you see when you open the book is not even text. It's this very primitive looking map that kind of suggests an incomplete understanding of what might be out there. And that's another part of it. Maybe we feel as though our imaginations are shut down by just yeah. the coordinates, the, the overmapping of reality. I think human beings do want to search beyond. But also, as I said before, we do know also that that isn't quite true either, that we don't know everything, actually. We haven't been back. And this is what I think is so 
tantalisingly exciting about the idea of dragons is that we don't, it's whether or not they really do exist. It's that tantalising idea that maybe they might exist. Not that they necessarily think that dragons exist, but in the search for spirituality, if you, if you like, that there's a deeper meaning to things. So we're very uncomfortable with, with the idea that we know everything, that we have the answers. And in fact, that isn't quite true. We haven't been down to the trenches at the bottom of the ocean. You know, we haven't actually discovered everything in the sea. We might not know everything. That's an exciting idea, I think, for children and adults, that the, the world is actually, it isn't an entirely mapped place. I think that's what dragons represent for a lot of people, that the, that the idea that it looks so organised, our world, and so, as you say, so mapped. But that isn't really the case. Matthew Riley, that very much touches on part of the the, the construct of the Great Zoo of China. Your, your book, this notion: well, we could still find something. You know, there there are, it's not really true that we've looked in every nook and cranny. That, that's that's right. And and actually, touching upon what, what everybody else has said, um, I'm a even though I love writing about human beings, you know, running away from large creatures and screaming, and getting eaten. I'm a big fan of human beings, and and one of our great capacities is the capacity for awe. And if you're looking for, you know, the what is the, the attraction of, of dragons, it's just like going to SeaWorld and watching a killer whale leap out of the water or going to the zoo and looking up at a, a giraffe or going to Paris and seeing the Eiffel Tower or New York and seeing the Empire State Building. Human beings love to be awed. And I think if you can imagine a dragon, we, we go to the cinema and it's not quite the same. We can see large-scale Disney movies where they're blowing up buildings and whatnot, and that is a substitute, a synthetic kind of awe. But that nothing beats going to the Grand Canyon and seeing how big something... We love big things, and I love how humans get awed by things. Let's let Cressida Kyle have possibly the last comment about this. My books are all about, ultimately, not only being a hero and being a leader and what kind of a leader should you be, but also about how we look after... How we look after the extraordinary species of creatures that there are in the world. I, I told you that my dad was a, an environmentalist and the dragons in my books I've treated as if they are an evolution of their own. So I've looked at all the different variety of creatures and how they are adapted to their environments. And the final book, what you realise as you go through the series is it's about saving the dragons you know my first premise was what if dragons really existed what would they look like how how would they be and the entire series is answering a, a slightly different and, and more bittersweet question which is if dragons existed where are they now all around you and see deep in the forest their dragons will be Okay, that's the end of the show. We do want to especially thank Alan Yu, who was a Croc fellow with us. Uh, he stayed in touch with us from Hong Kong, came up with this idea. And we also want to thank Betsy Kaplan, who, was, who made this all happen. And thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow unless, for some reason, we, we don't show up. Look all around you.